Friends of God, we are in the first days of our Lenten journey. This is the time to draw near to Jesus as he turns his face toward Jerusalem and the confrontations that will await him there. And as always on this first Sunday in Lent, the lectionary pulls us back, firstly, to Jesus' period of retreat into the wilderness, where he went immediately after his baptism. So he's heading to Jerusalem in Holy Week, and here we go, stepping back to the beginning of the ministry again. When we combine the verses of the wilderness account from Mark, Matthew, and Luke, we learn of Jesus fasting and praying and trying not to be eaten by wild beasts, all while facing intense temptation from Satan. It's boot camp for Jesus. And by reading this at the beginning of Lent, it seems an invitation to imitate this boot camp in our lives, too. I've preached sermons over the years where I've suggested the value of joining Jesus in fasting and prayer as one starts a heightened period of engagement with Jesus during Lent. It's the start of 40 days for Jesus and for us working together in preparation. But I have to say, this year I'm hearing something different. It doesn't make those former sermons I've preached any less true. Please keep fasting and praying and connecting. It's just that for me and you this year, I hear an alternative form of good news. Friends, let me just say it loud and clear. Jesus in this passage is definitively not inviting others into the wilderness with him. He's totally alone. And that's how he wants it to be and how God wants it to be. So this Lent, let's start by observing and appreciating, but let's not try to join him yet. In the verses leading up to the wilderness account, Jesus has been in community with a lot of enthusiastic followers of John the Baptist. The waters of the Jordan were cleansing and people were coming out from throughout the region to experience repentance and preparation together. Cleansing and relief were what people needed because filth and violence and burden and fear were defining too much of their lives. Roman soldiers on the street corners meddling and the whims of the emperor and kings and conspirators, their lives were burdened and they wanted an alternative. This Roman Empire, like so many other empires and kingdoms and administrations and coups, had flooded the earth with injustice. This empire, with crushing military presence and an insatiable appetite for wealth and power, couldn't be stopped. And it's against this backdrop that some faithful to the Torah and prophets were gathering at the Jordan for repentance and preparation. Preparation for what? For a fight? Yeah, right, they'd get squashed for sure. For God to make all things right? That might be better, to wait on God. Not an endless wait, not a futile wait, John said. There's one coming after me who will baptize you with the Spirit. Some sort of hopeful waiting. And one who went out there with John the Baptist in the crowd was Jesus. He went there to be baptized too. It's not clear in the passage if any of the people gathered that day heard the voice of God say to Jesus, You are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. It's not reported whether the crowd saw the clouds split apart and the Spirit descend on him like a dove. But it is clear that in that moment, Jesus went from being one with the crowds of the people, longing for a transformed world, to being one who was set apart for 40 days by himself. That's the moment of transition from being in community at the Jordan to being alone 
in the wilderness. He could have said, come on all, did you just see the clouds split apart? Did you hear the voice of God speak to me? I did, come on, let's go. But he didn't do that. Instead, he left John and the crowds there and went out alone to face chaos alone. Yes, chaos. It actually says he was in the wilderness, but wilderness doesn't mean it was a national park or a protected forest. Wilderness was an extremely desolate place. It was a place that sounds to me more like the tohu vavohu of the Hebrew in Genesis 1, a formless void, the chaos over which the Spirit of God swirled and began to create a world. My mind probably wouldn't have gone to these new places and understandings of wilderness if the passage from Mark hadn't been coupled with Genesis 9 in the lectionary this week. Other years, I've just thought about the significance of Jesus crossing the Jordan and going out to the same wilderness where the Israelites had wandered for 40 years, 1,300 years before the time of Jesus, and I've contemplated how it was that he re-entered after that 40 days, crossing the Jordan again to retake the promised land for his people, but this time with a new force of love. But this year, because of the Genesis reading, because of the dove at the waters of baptism, and the dove that Noah receives and sends out and receives and sends out from the ark, my mind went more global. It went beyond Israel's Exodus promised land story and into the story of the primordial flood over all the face of the earth. At the end of the flood story that runs from Genesis 5 to 9, Noah hopes that somewhere there might be land starting to appear through the waters. In chapter 8, Noah sends out one of the doves from the ark. The first time, no luck, it comes back with nothing. Seven days later, it goes out again, and this time it returns with an olive branch. Land is starting to appear somewhere. And then on the next trip, the dove does not come back. It's found a new and restored earth with vegetation. The dove is the sign that God has brought the creation through the flood. And then in Genesis 9, just after we hear the story about the dove and the new creation unfolding, God speaks to Noah, and God says never again about God's own approach of dealing with the corrupted earth. God says with tears in God's eyes, I believe, I will never again use divine violence like that. I will not wipe out the earth. In that passage, God takes responsibility for having caused a horrible and devastating flood. According to the scriptures, God had a big problem on God's hands that led to that action. The earth was seriously sick at that time. You think we've got problems today? Listen to this. It seems to have started not just with humans, but with fallen angels. Male angels saw that human women were beautiful, and so they descended from the heavens and took them as wives. And suddenly there were humans born who had way too much power, and their lives were exceedingly long, and their powers were like that of God. And once their powers were like that of God, they lost direction and wickedness grew over all the earth. In the Genesis account, who knows exactly where to place the blame? Was it with those lust-filled fallen angels? Or were the big problems with the Nephilim, those babies, resulting from this strange combination of the human and the angelic? Or was the blame just with very corrupted communities? However you slice it, whatever the cause, God no longer says, my creation is very, very good, as God had said in Genesis 1. Instead, God says, I am sorry that I have made them. Genesis 6, 7. And God did them in, indiscriminate drowning, 
all except Noah and a handful of his family members protected in an ark. And it seems God regretted that decision. God said never again. In Jesus' day, the enemy was not Nephilim, those twisted human angel beings. It was rather family dynasties of Caesars who live forever by passing down ill-gained wealth from generation to generation and who claim to be from God with their minions rushing roughshod across an ever-expanding empire. In Jesus' day, he found himself in a world where those who sought to follow God and to give themselves to the way of God's law felt overwhelmed by the waves of sin, corruption, and violence that crept in on them like a storm. And the people gathered at the water to call on God, to wait and prepare for God. The people gathered to hear John the Baptist and others call out to a God of justice who they expected to violently undo and subdue the powers. And they heard John say, I baptize with water, but there's one coming after me who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Can't you just wipe it away, God? Wipe them all away with water or fire or something. Nope, I don't do that anymore. God was silenced, but that was God's response. Instead, God gave Jesus, at his baptism, a divine shout-out and a spirit dove. And the spirit sent Jesus off alone like Noah to sail alone through flooded chaos in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. So friends of God, hear the good news. When times were rough in Jesus' day, God did not send a flood to annihilate everything. Instead, God sent the dove spirit-filled Christ into a dry run alone with chaos that Christ might prepare to be an ark, an ark of God's everlasting covenant with the creation, if you will. As theologian Walter Brueggemann says about this passage, the place of God in a violent world is not as violent corrector, but rather as constant presence. God has resolved to stay with, endure, and sustain the world, notwithstanding the sorry state of humankind. God will not let the rebellion of humankind sway God from God's grand dream for creation. Unquote. Friends, I think that Jesus went into the wilderness, into the chaos for those 40 days to be fashioned by God's spirit into being humanity's constant presence. He let himself be fashioned into an ark, an ark ready to hold back chaos, and he had to do that alone. It was something that he did for us. But he didn't stay there alone. He came out. He came back. He'd become an ark on his own out there, but not to remain alone. He became an ark, strong and sturdy, chaos ready for you and me and for the whole world. This ark wasn't going to limit salvation to people two by two and the elephants and the kangaroo. The ark didn't have inflexible sides, but rather could expand to fit all who wanted to come inside. The goal of this ark was to hold as many people and as much of creation as possible and to shuttle people around through chaos and into dry land and to send the dove to settle on people wherever they might go, that they too might receive the promised Holy Spirit. And this ark, though one, has the power to sail many rough seas at once. This ark can be along the shores of Myanmar right now and Ethiopia. 
And in the hills of Cameroon and, and Guatemala all at the same time, this ark moves through chaotic waters and over mountains and into crowded militarized streets. This ark is ready and steady. And the dove goes out from there and the dove returns to there and the dove hovers over and among so many at once. Sometimes it comes to you when you're on the ark moving around with Jesus through stormy seas and sometimes it comes to you when you're on land and things are grand and for a moment you can just be very good. I'm glad Jesus went out there alone to face the chaos and to be fashioned and molded. It's best that we not all be arcs. Let's let Jesus be the ark, okay? He went out there alone and got ready for it. And now let's join him on his ark, wherever we are. For there is room enough for you and there is room enough for all. And when we can, let's step onto dry and confident land and know that it is good. Thanks be to God. Amen.